Hi, uh, this is Dr. Jeff Fuden. I am a pharmacist. I specialize in pain management. I am part of the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast today and happy to be here. My biggest pet peeve in the pain management arena, I'd say, has to be this whole issue with the opioid epidemic. The truth is, I think at this point, we don't really have a prescription opioid epidemic anymore. What we have is an illicit fentanyl epidemic. So people are not so much dying from prescription opioids, and if they are, it pretty much is because people that are taking them for whom they were not prescribed. So the real problem that we're seeing now is the illicit fentanyl. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist in Big Mouth, here to take you on a journey to address the myths and misinformation in the health and wellness space. And I hope what we do here provides you some value, some insight to help you along your wellness journey. I wanted to just say, listen, you got to check us out. We've got lots of great stuff, not just our podcast. Over at woodstockvitamins.com, I have a fun-to-read blog and some off-the-cuff rants where I use bad language. And then also the Big Mouth Pharmacist is getting its own webpage pretty soon, so be on the lookout for that at thebigmouthpharmacist.com. But until then, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. My alias at Twitter is at BigMouthRPH. And send all your podcast-related ideas, questions, and feedback to podcast at woodstockvitamins.com. Today, we check off a promise I made when I first pitched the podcast to my Woodstock Vitamins fans. We're going to talk about opioids and the opioid epidemic. How fun, right? Right. So my guest today is famous in my world, uh, which is filled with pharmacy nerds in the northeast part of our country. Dr. Jeff Fuden is a pharmacist specializing in pain management. He's thoroughly credentialed with all sorts of initials, but the legitimate ones, not the ones that the fake internet supplement doctors use. Uh, he's the owner and managing editor of paindoctor.com, P-A-I-N-D-R.com, and co-editor of various publications around pain management. For a lot of us youngins, he served as a role model, mentor, and teacher, especially as it pertains to the therapeutics of pain. So Jeff and I are going to walk through the whole opioid picture and look at each of the players in the opioid crisis and try to determine where things went wrong. So here's Dr. Jeff Fuden. So Jeff, so what was it like as a practitioner, like over the entire 15 to 20 years that this opioid opioid epidemic has has started and kind of like peaked and now we're on on the downward swing? To walk us through what it was like the early days when it got was getting really hot, and then now as a practitioner, that's 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 actually uh, yeah that's that's a that's a that's a big uh, task. Mm-hmm. But so I'll tell you, I mean, I started out uh, in the early '80s uh, doing hematology and oncology, mm-hmm. and so you can imagine in the cancer population, nobody really thought twice so much about using opioids. At least you wouldn't think so. Mm-hmm. But back, I'm telling you, over 20 years ago, we had oncologists that had a difficult time giving opioids to patients because they were afraid that they would become addicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can remember when uh, Purdue Pharma came out with MS Contin, which was the first extended release opioid, 
And I had a hard time getting oncologists to prescribe it because it was morphine, you know? And mm -hmm. so um, I can remember having discussions with the oncologists. You know, you're giving these patients Tylenol with codeine, which is right. short acting. Codeine gets metabolized to morphine anyway. So essentially you are giving them morphine, but they can't sleep through the night. Oh, and by the way, you're giving them chemotherapy, which is toxic to the liver. Right. And you're giving them Tylenol with codeine, and the Tylenol is toxic to the liver. So yeah. it was a struggle back then with oncologists. But then I think, you know, in part because of marketing, um, in part because we had um, a developing specialty of pain management, people came around and uh, they, were, they were less reluctant to prescribe opioids. Um, and then... Uh, um, extended release opioids became a, a, a big thing. And of course, there was a lot of marketing uh, around that. Uh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's okay to be giving chronic opioid therapy uh, to chronic non-cancer patients. But the, and that's okay. But the issue back then is that there was no regard to stratifying risk of these patients. So in other words, you have patients that, that don't have cancer but but it was important at that time and pretty much ignored that not everybody is wired the same way, right? right. So, so there are certain risks that we know now uh, that, that elevate the chances of, of going down a slippery slope. Of addiction and dependence and all of that is what you're saying. Right, yeah. and, right. And, and uh, people just didn't pay attention to that. So, for example, if you're a cigarette smoker, mm -hmm. you know, you're addicted to nicotine, you're sexually abused as a child, if you're a male if you came from a difficult family situation, and then any of those things coupled together. So that was largely ignored back, back you know, many, many years ago. And people start, started prescribing a lot of the ex, ex, extended release opioids without regard to, to some of these risks. Yep. Then, uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, this whole thing with pain is a fifth vital sign came along that everybody had rights to be treated for, for pain. And I think that that's true. But yeah. the problem is, I feel like the people that were prescribing these drugs really had very, very little training uh, in in opioid therapy. Right. That's what I grew up in. I grew up in the pain is the fifth uh, the fifth vital sign, and we need to treat everyone for their pain, and and we need smiley faces all across the board. And right. I worked in, I worked in geriatrics before I opened the practice, and and that was a big thing is you know, opioids in the nursing home. <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. Know? So right. And and then I think another thing that that uh, happened was that hospitals start being evaluated from a reimbursement standpoint on how well they treated the pain. So you would right. get right so you would get patients admitted to the hospital and really all they wanted is opioids and they would just mm -hmm. scream for more opioids and they would get them because right. the facilities wanted their scores to be high. Right. So I mean all those things contributed. So now kind of fast forward uh, to two thousand and twelve. Right. So in 2012, a group came along called PROP, Physicians for Rational Opioid Prescribing, Prescribing. PROP. Mm -hmm. And um, they submitted a petition to the FDA. And this group was, uh, was basically made up of non-pain specialists. Most of them were medical clinicians, but uh, the majority of them were, were psychiatrists. And this, this submission to the, uh, to the FDA uh, asked for three things. They asked that the label be changed for all opioids, that it couldn't include moderate pain anymore, that it was only severe, um, that that these drugs can only be prescribed for 90 days, 
um, uh, and, and um, for, for non-cancer pain, uh, and that the cutoff would be 100 milligrams of morphine equivalent per day. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, that was a tipping point really in my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went wild. I'm thinking, okay, so, so why is it okay to give a cancer patient uh, these opioids when they're going to die and they see a light at the end of the tunnel? And you have, a, let's say, a 40-year-old woman who has a chronic debilitating de- disease for which there's no cure that's extremely painful, and this person has to live for the next, who knows, you know, 50, 60 years in excruciating pain. They don't even want to live. So, right. you know, there's, there's no difference between the pathology of, of these excruciating pain syndromes and the cancer of the non-cancer patient. The morphine milligram equivalence is, is grossly flawed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happens after 90 days? What do you just stop the, the opioid and see, watch the patient go in withdrawal? Right. <laughs> it seems like super arbitrary, all of these kinds of they things. They are like- all arbitrary. So, mm-hmm. um, so I started a group called PROMPT, P-R-O-M-P-T, which was professionals, not physicians, because physicians (laughs) own pain management, professionals for rational opioid monitoring and pharmacotherapy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that, uh, became very popular. There was was debates between the two groups. And and, um, anyway, um, following that in 2016, uh, the CDC guidelines came out. So Mm -hmm. PROP was unsuccessful uh, in in, uh, having the FDA uh, change these rules. It did take them about a year uh, to rule on it, uh, and then um, uh, and then in 2016, the very same people that were involved in PROP somehow weaseled their way into uh, the CDC. Uh, they did. The CDC did not um, f- uh, form a panel uh, by regulation the way it should have been. In other words, they 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 did not um, they did not um, look for disclosures in many of these people. Right. And, uh, you know, they're supposed to post and all sorts of things. And the, the, the CDC did not do that. And so basically it was a bunch of what who I call prop, P-R-O-P, propagandists. <laughs> You're such a smart guy. <laughs> propaganda. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So it, it became, it became a big issue. And of course, these, um, these, these CDC guidelines now were put out there. And even though they were, they were intended to be recommendations, uh, they were not actually based on, uh, on peer-reviewed uh, literature, um, although they were they were given high-level recommendation. Uh, and um, we, what a lot of us knew was going to happen happened. And we predicted that what, that would happen is that managed care would start using the CDC guidelines as policy. That states would do that. That patients would be harmed. That suicide risks would go up. And all those things happened as a result of the CDC guidelines. Yeah. So this, is, my audience has a general distrust towards big pharma and like groups like the CDC because of the politicalization and like the kind of corruption. Do you feel? And I kind of want to go back and talk about the um, the marketing you were talking about and like the the, the fifth vital sign and that whole mentality. Do you think that there's like infiltrate? infiltration at these groups from a um, like financial big pharma standpoint to uh, persuade people to make pain the fifth vital sign? Do you feel like people are justified in saying groups like the CDC and and these pharmaceutical organizations are untrustworthy? Well, um, there's a couple of questions in there. I, I yep. think um, I don't ever recall 
pharma being involved in pain is the fifth vital sign. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I could be wrong, but but if I recall, the, for, the, the pain is the fifth vital sign was really for acute pain mm-hmm. in, in the in-hospital setting. And so there we're talking about, at least at least back when this was popular, we're mostly talking about generic morphine, generic hydromorphone, uh, you know, things that were not big ticket items for pharma. So I don't think that pharma was involved in, in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, pharma uh, was certainly involved in, in marketing uh, some of the opioids, particularly the extended release opioids uh, early on. And, 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 you know, over the course of a couple of decades, uh, there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on the other hand, we have licensed professionals that are writing these prescriptions. Right. So the counter argument to that is, well, you know, unless these doctors are somehow being paid off, mm-hmm. then, I mean, you have to think that the prescribers have some kind of a brain. Like, right. You, know, you would it, hope. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, you know, the, the question comes, you know, how influential is pharma over, over these prescribers? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I've seen a turnaround in that. So, like, years ago, you know, we would have – I mean, I'm th- my father was a pharmacist. I can remember him working in a retail pharmacy. He'd come home from, from work with all these goodies, you know, these pocket yeah. pouches and the pens and the pads and yeah. stuffed animals and God knows what else. Um, and then, you know, year, years later when I was a pharmacist, still I think, you know, pharma was involved in, in marketing with like, you know, stuffed animals and pens and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, the pendulum has swung so far in the opposite direction uh, it is so highly regulated now that that they don't have the giveaways uh, that they used to have. In fact, I haven't seen a pharma pen, and I can't, can't remember yeah, right. The, right the last mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's gone the opposite direction. In fact, a lot of institutions will not allow um, uh, pharmaceutical reps to come in and market them. Now, yeah. to me, there's actually a big negative side to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's a few negative sides to that. First of all, um, people are yelling that the pharmaceutical industry is making a lot of profit. Okay, mm-hmm. well, you know what? They are a business. They have to make profit. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they, wouldn't, they wouldn't survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but the very same institutions that are keeping these, these pharmaceutical reps out of their facilities are the first ones to put their hands out when they want grants for research or they right. want to do an educational symposium um, and, and they need funding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it really is kind of a double-edged sword. The other thing is that um, because of managed care, physicians are so overburdened with seeing patients, right? They're seeing these patients every 10 to 15 minutes, and they don't yeah. have time to do the things that they need to do. And then you have the attorneys who are saying, okay, well, you need to document all this stuff in the chart. So then, you know, they end up copying and pasting stuff into the chart because they have to meet this criteria and then that criteria. And they're sitting there with the patient and they don't even look at the patient. They spend half the time staring at the computer screen. So right. there are a whole lot of things that have happened over the years uh, that, that have changed medical practice. And I, I think that pharma is probably the least of it. I yeah. Mean, I think that, that um, you know, a lot of these physicians are not getting um, exposed to some new products, some new good products. Forget about pain management for any right. kind of, of, of uh, disease state. They're not exposed to some of these, these new products. Uh, they don't read about them because by the time they get home, they're freaking exhausted. Yeah. Right? And so it is good, I think, to have uh, pharma companies or at least somebody come in um, and expose the, um, the medical staff to some 
you know, some new research, some new technology, I think that that's very important. But there needs to be a filter, right? They need to be able to filter out the good, bad, and ugly. Right. Yeah. And you would hope that their professional judgment would allow them. So, and, and you're right, there are lots of problems and big pharma and their, their machine is, is definitely a big piece of this. But let's go back to that concept of like, where the doctor is getting paid off. Um, so why would a prescriber just start writing prescriptions for opioids out of control? And I guess the, the bigger question, probably for the people at home, is that are doctors, what are, what, I guess, what is the, the different rankings of doctors that are out there? We have the pill mill doctors, the doctors that caused the problem, the opioid epidemic, where they wouldn't even spend more than a few minutes with people, not because they didn't want to, just because they didn't have to, because they were getting cash for that opioid prescription. They would just slam down a diagnosis and, and not even chart it and then send them on their way, all the way to the doctors that are using opioids irresponsibly in people and causing addiction that way to the people that were responsible. So, so the doctors, I guess, weren't getting paid off by big pharma, you know, it was more like the, their own financial interests because of these other things that you're talking about. The fact that they're working like dogs and they don't have um, a, a fair uh, salary for what they're doing or they want to get rich, you know? Right. So there is a huge financial system here, right? So I, I'm not reading that wrong, right? So what are the different kind of types of doctors that you've dealt with in this opioid epidemic? So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, as you know, I do a lot of expert witness work. So I've seen, I've seen everything across the spectrum. Yeah. So I, I, I think um, there's not really a lot of pill mills left. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's few, if any. Yeah. Um, and, and the ones that are left won't be around for long. Yeah. So for, for many years, you're right. I, I think that, you know, doctors, not just medical doctors, but pharmacists, um, nurse practitioners, PAs, people got greedy. Um, yeah. And then, yes, there were the far end of the spectrum was that there was pill mills and, yeah. and what they were doing is they were, they were basically, you know, hurting these patients in. Um, I mean, it, it was the, it, it's the point that some of these people had armed guards outside their door. Uh, they would tell patients don't park in the parking lot cause we don't want it to be obvious. And they would park, you know, a couple blocks away and they would, and they would walk to the facility. Uh, I've been, uh, I've been involved with cases where there's been sting operations where patients would come in and the receptionist at the counter would say, well, you know, why are you here? And they say, well, you know, I, I need, I need to get some opioids. And they say, well, okay, well, you, you need to tell me that you have back pain. Uh, and, you know, and they would do yeah. uh, x-rays or MRI. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. The things that, that went on for the sole purpose of making money. And of course these drugs ended up getting diverted, but I've seen different sides of the spectrum. I've seen sides of the spectrum where, uh, doctors <clears throat> might be seeing a lot of different sorts of patients, uh, you know, diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, whatever, um, and and uh, and they're willing to write opiates. And all of a sudden, the word gets out, and a bunch of people go to their clinic and and try and get opioids and you know fake a problem. Um, and I mean, you know, that that happens. This is this is this is their job, right? They yeah. all they do is they run around to different doctors trying to get drugs. Now, doctors are less, uh, are, are certainly more reluctant now and look at it, I think, with a, with a keener eye. But mm -hmm. I've seen situations where, where um, pharmacies worked uh, in, in, in concert with uh, pill mills to mm -hmm. get the drugs to the patients. But I have also seen 
doctors who got caught um, for doing, they didn't do anything intentionally wrong. They really felt, felt that they were helping the, the patients. And so mm-hmm. I've seen, and I've seen like everything in between that. Now, here's one thing that's really, you know, kind of a crying shame. I, I've seen some cases where a regulatory agency, either a state or federal government, uh, will bring a doctor up on charges from like 20 different, 20 different things, right? And, and um, if, if it's, if, if it's thought that, the, or, or they feel that the doctor uh, did something wrong, the doctors, gonna, I mean, they're going to lose their entire livelihood because they're going to say, oh, well, this was not a legitimate patient. And you build, uh, you build uh, uh, Medicare for this patient. And therefore, it's, it's fraudulent uh, federal, right. you know, federal crime and blah, blah, blah. Now you always back pay you know, for, for 50 or hundred patients for the last 10 years, uh, you know, that comes right, to $3 million. $5 million bucks. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, and so, you know, I'll review the chart. Now, now sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I mean, you know what? This guy belongs in jail. Yeah. Other times I look at it, I'm like, well, geez, you know what? I mean, yeah, this guy had some patients on high dose opioids mm-hmm. and maybe had the patient on a benzodiazepine, um, you know, but I'm not so sure that this doctor's a criminal. I right. I think that this doctor needs guidance. I I, I don't right. think I don't see anything criminal here. They had five patients that were on high dose opioids, um, and you know what? Maybe two of these patients were diverting it, and the DEA caught them, and that's what led them to the doctor. I mm-hmm. don't know, but the page the doctor has a thousand other patients that are not pain patients that are doing fine. The doctor doesn't have five mansions and 20 antique cars. The the doctors, you know, I mean, so I think that we need to look at the whole picture. And so some of these cases that I review, I'm like, you know, I'm not really so sure this is a problem. I'm willing to to review the charts and help this doctor get to where they need to be. Or maybe you need to put the the doctor on probation and require they go for continuing education or temporarily suspend their ability to write opioids. But you're not doing anybody any favors by taking an otherwise good doctor, uh, you know, out of practice and all of a sudden forcing these patients to try and find another doctor to prescribe their opioids, appropriate or not, and then right. taper the opioids. Don't just cut the patients off. Right. So there's all sorts of issues. Right. So like what I'm hearing then is like, there's definitely this group of rogue physicians that were fueling this, making this worse and uh, just being generally, uh, you know, corrupt when it comes to opioid prescribing. And then there's the guys in the middle. There's the the people that are trying their best, but may have made some bad decisions or, you know, it's very difficult. I guess the, I guess the insight that I'd like to hear is, is how hard is it to take somebody who may be addicted versus diverting. So diverting is when you sell it and you're making money. So you may be taking some pills, but you're not taking what's being prescribed. You're just moving it and trying to make an income from it as a drug dealer. Right. Um, but then then there's the people that are physically dependent upon it or, you know, as people uh, uh, say, addicted to it, right? Um, so, um, so how difficult is it as a pain management practitioner to move somebody who's in that bin of being addicted to um, to lower dose or getting them off the drugs. Okay, so let me just clarify something first that I think is important, sure. right? So mm-hmm. um, a lot of patients are labeled addicts because they are physically tolerant to the drug. Right. So you can't just, obviously, you can't just stop the drug. They'll become very ill, right? Mm-hmm. So that person, um, you know, a legitimate patient is not 
addicted, they are they are physically dependent. That's mm-hmm. really no different than a person that let's say is physically dependent on a beta blocker like propranolol. You can't just stop it. Right. They'll, right, they'll, they'll have a hypertensive crisis. Or caffeine. You, you or, know, you drink or, a pe- coffee right. every day and you try to come off of it, your body's going to say, hey, man, I really like that. You right. Know? <laughs> uh, antidepressants, you know, they have mm-hmm. to be they have to be tapered. So that's the first thing. So so how difficult is it for the patients and for the for the provider? Well, first of all, I mean, you know, I, I, um, the delineation has to be made of whether or not this patient is diverting drug or with a legitimate patient. And then if they are a legitimate patient, do they really need the opioid? Can they get away with a lower dose of, of opioid or, or, or no opioid? And so one of the issues that I see um, is is uh, is tapering, that yeah. a lot of prescribers really are not comfortable uh, tapering uh, opioids. And and actually we did a, we did a survey uh, last year asking clinicians how comfortable they are, you know, based on the dose that the patient is on. And of course, at the higher doses, they're like, you know, I'm not comfortable at all. I, I really don't yeah. know what, I, what I'm doing. And so the, the, the taper needs to be gradual. Sometimes it'll involve giving another drug like Lucimera or Clonidine or something like that uh, in order to blunt the, the withdrawal symptoms. But I think that another thing that's really very important is that clinicians are not well-trained or, or generally savvy in any way um, about uh, ascertaining whether or not the patient is legit. And what I, what I mean by that is that, let's say, for example, the CDC requires, uh, now, now it doesn't require, but su- suggests that, that patients have urine drug screens. Well, that's great, but they don't require that the people that are doing urine drug screens know how to interpret them. <laughs> and that's a huge, huge issue because I've seen legitimate patients uh, go to their family practice doctor uh, to to uh, and they have a urine drug screen, and then it comes back for something that they're not taking. Uh, for example, quetiapine or Seroquel, which is an antipsychotic, as you know, um, uh, very commonly prescribed. It's commonly prescribed as a uh, sedative agent for sleep yep. in patients mm-hmm. that don't have psychosis, right? And so the patient's on this, and if the urine drug screen, which typically is by assay. Um, there's a lot of false negatives and, and false positives. So an immunoassay urine screen will come back positive for methadone in a patient that's on Seroquel. Well, you know, that's a problem. Right? Yeah, a little bit of a, a, a translation issue there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, so that's an issue. So doctors, there's a lot of false negatives and false positives with urine drug screens. So that's a huge huge issue because patients are falsely accused. Sometimes the clinician uses it as an excuse to take mm-hmm. the patient off. Right. Um, and, you know, that's an issue. Um, and then we have other other cases where the, the you know you have a person that's diverting drug and they're more savvy about these false negatives and positives than the, than the prescribing clinician. So they'll go in right. and they'll have a positive urine for amphetamine, right? And, and the doctor will, 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 uh, will call them out on it. And they're like, Oh no no no! I was taking a decongestant, and and, and the doctor's like, "What?" I said, "Well, look it up. Yeah, yeah, decongestant cause a false false positive amphetamine." So right. you found all of those issues. Now in our clinic, we're a bit more savvy, right? So we do the urine drug screen, um, and we will confirm them with chromatography because that's pretty much that's that's close to a hundred percent, right? And then just because a patient has morphine in the urine, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean they're taking all the morphine that's prescribed. Right. right. So I will do a serum level. 
I'll do a blood sample, and then I know exactly how much they're really taking. Being positive or negative is not good enough. Mm -hmm. so, so it's very complex. It's very, very complex. So you could imagine then the general practitioner that has 15 minutes per patient, how uh, likely are they going to be to start messing with somebody who's been on chronic pain meds forever, you know, multiple drugs that aren't good or aren't looked at in the same way that they were looked at maybe 10 years ago, how right. likely they are to switch it around. And then if that person hurts themselves because they they drink a little bit too much, they take something that interacts and and then then you're on trial. So I could definitely understand that been a physician. So yeah, it, it's 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 a tough, tough world to be a physician right now uh, yeah. if you're if you're trying to do the right thing. So, you know, and as not being an expert in in this stuff, this is what I see the most. I see our physicians that have had people historic on multiple pain meds, super high doses, um, get really uh, nervous about making any changes. But then I also see docs that are like, we have to do something, at least document that we are trying. Um, and again, they're just throwing like, oh, let's do 10%. And, and it's dangerous and the patients don't feel good and, and it hurts. So it's a it's a very complex thing. So let's then move from doctors because we don't want to blame doctors. So we blamed big pharma. They're to blame. They were marketing. Everybody knows that they're corrupt, the Sackler family, all of that stuff. Right. So, and then we've talked a little bit about doctors with the nuance around it, the pill mill guys, get rid of those guys, but then everybody else, you have to be responsible. You have to um, uh, take more uh, training, get more education around all of these, these things. Now let's go to us. Let's go to pharmacists. Okay. How are we to blame in this whole process? I think I think that the pharmacists are, in a lot of ways, should share equal blame to the people that are prescribing the drugs, right? Right. And so you know the federal regulation says that the pharmacist has an equal and corresponding responsibility uh, when dispensing these drugs. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you know, a few years ago there was it, it was I think le it was you were less it was less arguable uh, for pharmacists. And you know, back back in the day when we didn't have prescription monitoring programs and people went to multiple different pharmacies in multiple different states, it was easier. Well, today mm -hmm. there's really no excuse. So a patient comes into a pharmacy with three different opioids, all high dose. In addition to that, there are one or two benzodiazepines, you know, like diazepam, Valium, Alprazolam, whatever it happens to be, maybe Zolpidem. In addition to that, they're on Carisoprodol or Soma, right? I mean, if that doesn't raise a red flag, I don't know what does. Mm -hmm. So if the pharmacist blindly fills that prescription, they are at least or more responsible than the doctor is. And so, um, but I, I've seen I've seen cases where, you know, the, the pharmacist would argue otherwise. They're like, well, you know, the doctor wrote it. And so, you know, I, I feel that I have an obligation to dispense it. And I've seen patients on my blog say the same thing. The pharmacist should keep their mouth shut it's none of their business. They should yeah. just fill the prescription. And I'm like, well, you know what? The pharmacists, pharmacists are not like, um, you know, people working in a parts department. They don't just yeah. get the order right. and fill it, mm -hmm. you know? And I think a lot of people uh, don't understand this. So I think that the pharmacists have a huge responsibility here. Um, and I don't think they've been up to the task over the last several years. Well, I mean, so this, we can say the same thing that we said about doctors, about the environment that pharmacists are in and the environment that physicians are in that creates this problem. So this isn't just as simple as saying, you know, the pharmacist should do more. So first and foremost, pharmacists are under the gun 10 times more than I think doctors are, you know, churn those prescriptions out, right. check the script, get it out, answer the phone in two rings, all of the environment that's set up in most pharmacies that people are at, like chain stores, right. it's horrible. You know, oh, yeah. it's, it's extremely difficult. And then, you know, again, as a practitioner, somebody that was in 
in it. Like we had a pill mill doctor in town here. And uh, I'm going to get to um, one of my other points about that. But we saw a high volume of stuff. How difficult is it for us at Counterside to determine if that person is a legitimate patient, if they have an addiction for a legitimate need or some sort of physical dependence, or if they're diverting it, looking at a guy, huh. you could say, so what are you using this for? Oh, yeah. horrible, horrible back pain. It came to a point uh, for the audience where the DA, Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement in New York and other agencies were telling us, well, we should be confirming with the doctor. We should be asking if they're getting MRIs. And so the role of a, a community pharmacist has always been to educate and dispense and like, you know, be that part of that triad between the patient and the doctor. But how involved have we been unless we were a specific clinical pharmacist, sort of like Jeff, who's working in an institution, right? Yeah. So for me to be like, hey, doctor, so-and-so, do you have an MR? Like, how insane is that for me, you know? <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah, you, you, I mean, so you bring up some excellent points. Um, and some pharmacies, like Walgreens is one of the first pharmacies uh, that basically came out with a policy and, and and their pharmacists were required to call the doctor and question about all these things. And in some pharmacies, particularly in Florida, they wanted the doctor's office to send over the MRI. And I'm like, how stupid is that? Even if they sent it over, the pharmacist wouldn't know what they were looking at. Right. right. That That's right. what I said. I right. don't know how to read an MRI. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so, so if they send me one, how do I know if it's mine or it, they could be sending my MRI? You know, <laughs> is that a brain? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, if, I mean, first of all, what, you know, we're in an environment now where we're kind of forced now. Um, I mean, to some extent, we should be contacting the, uh, the prescriber anyway. But now the new CMS guidelines are requiring after a certain milligram amount that the farms is called the doctor. But I mean, I could I could tell you how to solve this problem, really. Um, I think that, and and Neil, you know, pharmacists um, have an awful lot of training, um, and and a lot of that training they don't use. Uh, they're not allowed to use it, um, in, in part because pharmacists are the only healthcare providers that are not considered providers, right? Right. So, you know, they can't really bill for it to, to 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 see a patient. So one of the ways that, you, that the, the problems that you just outlined could be fixed is that if any that if there was chart sharing, in other words, mm -hmm. the pharmacist has access to the medical record, you know, and you know, you, you know, you're filling a prescription. I don't think that you're going to go check, you know, the, read the MRI, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at least you'd have the record, and right. whether it was you or an intern or somebody else, somebody could at least go in there and say, okay, there's an opioid agreement on file. The doctor's been doing urine screens. You know, Neil, you don't have to you don't have to sit down and try and interpret that urine screen, but urine screens are being done. There's an agreement on file. The patient's being seen every month. Some general stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and unfortunately the pharmacists are not in a position to do that because they don't have the medical record in front of them. And it right. doesn't have to even be pain management. I mean, mm -hmm. if you have a patient that that has, you know, that you're treating cholesterol or whatever, wouldn't it be kind of be nice? If you saw that the cholesterol was elevated or the A1Cs were very high and the patient came in and you said, you say to the patient, yeah, you know what, um, let's sit down and do some counseling or let's have a special session. I mean, some of these pharmacies do have a counseling area. Let's have a special session, see if we can get your, you know, help get your your, uh, your glucose under control. We'll work together with your your doctor. And some pharmacies have certified, um, you know, certified clinicians in, in diabetes. So I think that the... the the whole paradigm needs to change. Yeah. Pharmacists need to be um, treated as clinicians. They need to practice to the top of their license. 
I think that pharmacy technicians should be doing most of the mechanical stuff and that, and that pharmacists should be doing close to 100% clinical. I mean, I know maybe I'm biased because I spent my life doing clinical pharmacy, but I think that the a lot of, I think people coming into the pharmacy would not be comfortable with that at first. Others would be extremely comfortable with it. Uh, but I think that once it became kind of a way of life, uh, that the things would be better. Yeah, I think that a lot of people in our society don't realize what we're missing with pharmacists in the current modality that they are. Like we are so tied to the drug dispensing and the cost of drugs is what our value is associated to. Right. And and that is not appropriate. Like if if instead of um, us being focusing on um, on just dispensing your drugs and educating you how to take your quinolone, instead we were managing your medications. Imagine going into a pharmacy where you have your five to 10 prescriptions and your occasional antibiotics and that pharmacist is there to manage your meds. So to make sure that you have all your refills, that you're compliant, that they're not interacting that your lifestyle stuff is all in check. And then if you get hospitalized, that pharmacist is responsible for making sure that you transition in and transition out appropriately. And then you have everything you need and your medicines are delivered and, and all of those kinds of pieces to how pharmacy should be. That would be a tremendous, a tremendous change to how healthcare is because you know we're super passionate about it um, and we're kind of off topics with opioids, but it's right on, on par with opioids here. You know, there would be better outcomes if pharmacists were able to do their their to their training, like you said. And so, and yeah, yeah, go ahead. So now, I, I mean, I think it is. I think you hit the nail on the head. It is very on par with opioids because mm -hmm. there we have an opioid epidemic, mm -hmm. an opioid epidemic, right? And so the the CDC panel that made these guidelines were a group of physicians. Mm -hmm. Right, they came up with guidelines on how one should prescribe opioids. That would be like having a panel of pharmacists making a decision on a surgical procedure. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. The the one profession, the one profession who specializes in therapeutics was not included. It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, 100%. The idea that um, we are not involved in prescribing policy is is insane to me. And, um, and you know, I, I guess we, I, we should probably move on so this doesn't become a rant uh, that I do on pharmacy and pharmacists. But, uh, but I think that, the, you know, understanding that pharmacists are to blame, but also just like with the physicians in that gray area, the system is what's what's Kind of putting someone down. That's that's what's preventing the best possible outcomes um, associated with opioid use and other drugs in a medical perspective. It's the fact that we're we're basing the doctor's value on how many patients they see, and we're we're dealing the the, the pharmacist value on how many prescriptions they churn out um, accurately or not. You know, right. so it's it, that has to change in order for us to prevent these types of health epidemics moving forward. Um, so we talked about the manufacturers. Now let's talk about something that just came out. We had a drug DEA. Uh, the DEA has a drug database of all the movement of pills that they I guess they've been sitting on for a while and didn't really tell anybody about. And so let's talk about DEA and their responsibility in the opioid crisis. I have some thoughts, but I'd like to know what your ideas are. Well, I, I feel like the, uh, the DEA uh, has been very ineffective. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I mean... It is not really about uh, arresting physicians 
or making a quota. At least it should not be about that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, the, it, if the DEA was successful in doing what they did, mm -hmm. then we wouldn't have the problems that we have, right? right? The real problem, as I mentioned earlier, are fent illicit fentanyl analogs. Okay. Right? And so the pill mills are pretty much gone. And there's all this rhetoric in the media about, you know, these horrible doctors mm -hmm. where the reality is that most of the deaths that we're seeing now are mm -hmm. because the heroin on the street is laced with illicit fentanyl, which is very potent. That gotcha. to me is where the DEA should be focusing their attention. Right. So let's, um, because a lot of our, our listeners are, are not pharmacists. So fentanyl is an opioid drug. And it's one of the ones that I think is great to teach people about the differences between the drug properties and like how we can make a product uh, do something different than uh, those drug properties. I'm talking about like the the short acting nature versus the patches, because most people would come across fentanyl as a patch, right? That's how right. most consumers would see it. So can you kind of teach us about fentanyl, its properties yes. and like how the patch is different? Yes. And, and uh, so fentanyl, there, there are basically five chemical classes of opioids. Um, mm -hmm. And fentanyl falls into a, a certain family of opioids called phenylpapyridines. Uh, and, and within that class, there are multiple drugs, um, all but one of which have the same chemical nucleus. Mm -hmm. So there's fentanyl, there's remifentanyl, there's sufentanyl, all of the fentanyls are more potent, much more potent than morphine. So, for example, fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine. Now, mm -hmm. potency is not really terribly important. Potency mm -hmm. just means that you would need 100 times lesser of a dose right. to elicit the same response, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it is what it is. But mm -hmm. the, the point is that volume-wise, you need a lot less fentanyl to, to have the same effect as you would for the same volume of morphine. And so, and so there, these drugs that I just mentioned are all pharmaceutical. Now, let's talk about another drug called carfentanil, which also has the same nucleus. Carfentanil is a thousand times more potent. And it, you need like the, the, the tip of a pin, mm -hmm. right, would, would be higher than any therapeutic dose needed in, in your eye. And so right. that drug is FDA approved not in humans, but in animals. To be used in animals like horses, rhinoceros, um, giraffes, very, very large animals. How, household pets is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, household <laughs> pets, right, right. And so carfentanil started to come into this country illicitly. But that carfentanil is a drug that, that we, at least in the veterinary medicine arena, we know. So what happened is that people in China, uh, mostly in China, started to create fentanyl analogs. They had some similarities to carfentanil in terms of potency, um, but they were not pharmaceutical, not the, not the FDA-approved fentanyl, but they were fentanyl derivatives. And they came coming into this country 10, 150, 500 times more potent than morphine. And so the heroin dealers can get this stuff pretty cheap. Now, if you're running a heroin business, Seriously, just like if you're running a, ph a pharmacy business, not. But yeah, it's pretty if, much if, the same. Yeah. If you're running a heroin business and you could take the tip of a pin and put it into, let's say, a pint of solution, mm -hmm. right, and put a teeny, a teeny bit of heroin in there, and but you can, I mean, you can maximize your profits because the right. user, the end user doesn't know whether it's fentanyl or heroin, right? So you can mm -hmm. make it go a lot further. And so mm -hmm. that's what's happening. A lot of the dealers are putting 
fentanyl analogs into the heroin. And so people are shooting up heroin and they have no idea what's in it or what the potency is and they die. Right. That's the majority of deaths in this country right now. Got it. So what we need to be, so how does, what's the DEA's role here then? I, I mean, I think the DEA needs to do something about, about uh, preventing these, these drugs from coming into the country. Right. Um, if they, if they can, uh, you know, the other problem is there's, you know, some of these dogs have been trained to sniff out fentanyl analogs they, they now, they now have respirators for the dogs because dogs have died because it's such yeah. a potent, such a potent drug. Um, yeah. so they need to come up with creative ways to prevent it from coming into the country. And when it gets into the country, they, they need to make sure, uh, that, that, uh, that they nip it in the butt, you know, when, so that, so, so that supply comes in that it immediately gets taken off the street. Mm-hmm. But there's so much focus on, on these so-called bad doctors that the real yeah. cause of death right now is being, I'm not going to say it's, it, it's ignored, but the attention is being diverted away from where it needs to be. Right. And that's an important message. I think anything that we can do to help reframe the argument, this is my art, what I say all the time uh, when we talk about natural products, is that the media frames our our paradigm, our mindset, um, you know, big farmer versus natural products. And that's how we go through our days. So like we hear opioids, bad doctors, uh, oxycodone, those kinds of things, but we don't think of these other things. So it's very important for all of us to understand the, the broader picture here. And yeah, you know what? So I, I think another important point here is uh, the reports of the deaths. So if any mm-hmm. of the listeners were to go to the CDC website or, you know, any legitimate, you know, federal website, um, and looked up the the um, the prevalence of opioid deaths. Mm-hmm. You know they're going to see all these prescription deaths. Mm-hmm. But here's the important point. So when a person dies of an opiate, a prescription opiate, um, or dies of an illicit opiate, mm-hmm. if there's an opiate in there, it counts as a death. So if a patient is let's say using hydrocodone, a small amount, or they're using oxycodone, a small amount. Well, they're using large amounts, but they know how much to take. And then all of a sudden they die from, from heroin that's laced with fentanyl. Mm-hmm. That counts as a ding on prescription opioids because they've got, they've got the oxycodone in their, in their the system, blood. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, a lot of the, the reports that we're now seeing of prescription opioid deaths, the patient did not actually die from the prescription opioid. There just happens to be prescription opioid in their blood but they died from something else. Right. And that's important. Very important. Very important for people to understand. And um, just to circle back to put some more blame on the DEA, uh, again, as a practitioner, we would make frequent uh, complaints about doctors. So our responsibility in the prescribing paradigm is to make sure that we're giving legitimate medicine to legitimate patients. So if we saw something squirrely, we would make a phone call. We would say, hey, DEA agent, I want to let you know this doctor looks fishy. Right. And what would happen? zero absolutely nothing we would get no response we would get no feedback we would have no idea it would take years for an investigation to happen so i know one doctor in particular i called on 15 times and i still was questioned for my role as a pharmacist in the process you know and so the idea that the um the DA, the difficulty for a pharmacist working with DEA and the regulatory agencies in reporting the fishy stuff, that was a real problem during this whole thing. Uh, but right. then you see something like the DA database that was just released, how they saw the movement of pills. And 
I can use a spreadsheet and it's very quickly to see, uh, very quick to see patterns and, and to understand like where stuff is moving. And, you know, the people that have had like 10 minutes with it have already been able to uh, elicit exactly where all these bills were moving. So were these tools actually being used by the DEA? And uh, to, because it's glaringly obvious what was going on and why weren't they acting on it quicker, I guess? Well, I mean, the, the tools were being used by the DEA. I mean, I, I know people in, in the DEA, uh, actually some people very well, and um, they were being used by the DEA for years. But I think, you know, what, what they, what they, I, I know what, what they do is the DEA, just like the pharmacists, just like mm -hmm. the physicians, mm -hmm. these agents are overwhelmed. Right. right? And, and, and so they're, they're going after the bigger pockets first. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, right. and so and so, you know, if if Neil is to call up and say, you know, I got this problem, yeah, um, in it, Ulster it, County, <laughs> right? It may never be looked at, right? Um, or you know, so it's probably best to call the state, the New York State Bureau of Narcotics. They mm -hmm. are they also are overwhelmed, so they're going to look at the bigger problems first. Yeah. Uh, but they but they will, you know, they will go to Ulster County and follow up on on a complaint for sure. The the DEA, you know, at federal level, is just just too big. They're they're overwhelmed. Yeah, and I think that brings up the best point of this whole thing is that um, I, just like you, I have a great relationship with my DEA field agents. They're awesome. Like they've been so helpful. My Bureau of Narcotic uh, Enforcement, um, like the the consultants there, they and the investigators, they're so helpful. They're they're awesome. But they're broke. The agencies are getting defunded constantly, and as a result. Right all of this mayhem happens. And so, the, and you know, I, I had just done a rant on our blog about how generics are being made overseas and everybody's getting all upset about it. And I'm like, well, why aren't our agencies being funded enough to, to investigate this? And why are these mega corporations allowed to, to use these loopholes to exploit cheap labor in other countries, you know? Right. So like all of these different variables come into play. And I'm really glad that you were able to come on today to talk about the opioid epidemic and kind of shed light on some of these other dimensions. Um, and I want, I have a million pain management questions that I want to ask you. So I think you're going to have to come on. And we're going to talk about pain management just in general, because everybody wants to know about the safety of Tylenol and ibuprofen and natural pain management. And, and like, how do you treat rheumatoid arthritis and all these great questions that I've been getting asked uh, from my listeners, but we want to finish up this opioid epidemic piece. So where are we now? And, and is it, is it too much? And then the second question, um, what do you see for the future in uh, opioids and pain management? Well, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, where are we now? I think we have, I think we have a huge mess. <laughs> I think we have a huge, yeah, a, a huge, huge mess. And we have a lot of uh, rhetoric out there. Um, one of the places that we are now, uh, which is something that we talked about uh, just before we started this, uh, uh, this show, um, is about the morphine equivalents. That's where we're at right now. We have agencies. We have uh, states. Well, why don't you take a second and just explain what that is? I understand it, but uh, yeah. uh, for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Sure. So we, we have we have states, we have um, federal government, and we have uh, third-party uh, payers um, that are hanging their hat on morphine equivalents. They're saying if you're above a certain amount of morphine equivalent, where you're not going to pay for it, you know, or, or I mean, all, all sorts of issues, right? And so here's here's the thing. Um, I, I wrote an article a while back. Uh, that talked about, it, it was in the title, The Pseudoscience of Morphine Equivalent Daily Doses. Mm -hmm. There really is no such thing. And, okay. and originally, uh, many, many years ago, when people established morphine equivalent doses, it was, it was based on, like you look at two drugs or three drugs, 
and you'd say, okay, what is the equivalent dose to get equivalent analgesia? It was not. Uh, it was not uh, developed to to liken one drug to another in terms of toxicity. But what mm -hmm. but what these agencies are doing, and third party payers are doing, is saying this drug is equitoxic to that drug. That right. simply is not true. Now, besides that, um, and this is really very complex, so I'll, I'll try and keep it keep it simple. Mm -hmm. um, different drugs, as you know, are broken down by or metabolized in the body different ways. Mm -hmm. Some of the opioids go through one pathway, other opioids go through another pathway. Um, some of the breakdown products, for example, from oxycodone gets broken down, uh, part of it gets broken down to oxymorphone, which is mm -hmm. more potent than oxycodone. Right. Another part of oxycodone is metabolized to an inactive metabolite. So you get basically two byproducts from oxycodone, one that's more active and mm -hmm. one that has no activity at all. Right. And so um, people that, that metabolize this are different from patient to patient and population to population. So imagine if you had somebody who was a poor metabolizer um, of oxycodone would need a lower dose. Right. If you had somebody that was an ultra-rapid metabolizer, they could tolerate a really, really, really high dose. But then right. you convert them, let's say, to morphine, which has a completely different pathway, the way it's broken down. And, and so you could actually overdose them or grossly underdose them on morphine because they were an outlier. With oxycodone, right. they either rapidly broke it down or poorly broke it down. And then you switch them to morphine, uh, they're either going to grossly overdose them or grossly underdose them. And that's one simple example. But there are right. many, many opioids, as, as you know. And so to try and say that there's an equivalent one-size-fits-all is just stupid. Yeah. And now in New York, I don't know any of the listeners know this, but there's a tax on opioids that's based on morphine milligram equivalents. And if you use certain opioids, your tax will be higher because it's more potent compared to morphine than others. So it, literally what what it could do is it could force somebody that's using something uh, very kind of like low dose, low potency, like tramadol and convert them to morphine because it'll be financially uh, more beneficial. Right. So going from the low guns to the big guns. So essentially they're saying these morphine milligram equivalents are trying to take all of the opioids and put them in a table and say 10 milligrams of this one is 20 milligrams of this one, which is four milligrams of this right. one. And so that way you can kind of, uh, you know, monitor and then like cap that they're saying no more than this otherwise we're not going to pay for it and as you're saying there's too much nuance to that and it's not a good idea to apply apply these broad strokes i feel like a lot of with this this whole regulatory system it's like just to have some sort of momentum they'll they'll do something without really thinking through all of yeah, the different yeah. uh avenues and I, th I think i think that you're right you know i need to i mean uh, you know i'll I'll talk about some, you know, where we're going in the future, like you asked. But I, yeah. I do, I do think that um, I should come back and talk about some of this other stuff. We can also talk about the the buprenorphine products that are available for pain and that sort of thing. But yeah. I, I think that uh, where we're going uh, in, in the future, to answer your question, um, I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of new uh, new classes of drugs. Now, you know, not new opioids per se. Some of them are new opioids, but we have other classes of drugs too. For example. Uh, we have uh, we have uh, drugs that affect um, 
glial cells, or called glial cell, glial cell uh, modulators, spelled G-L-I-A-L. Mm -hmm. um, there's the um, the nerve growth factor uh, um, drugs. Uh, there's a lot of them coming out uh, on, on the market. Um, so that's going to be uh, pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, there are um, uh, CRGP inhibitors. The uh, you know they're, they're used for uh, migraines, which is mm -hmm. a whole new class of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, my goodness, uh, there there's um, uh, a drug called NKTR181, which doesn't have a name yet. Okay, um, that's actually oxycodone that has um, a chemical like a chain on it. Uh, and and so when that gets into their brain, it's very interesting. You have a lot of you know slow release opioids that you take orally. This mm -hmm. one is different because one of the reasons that you become uh, tolerant and euphoric and crave more opioid is because of how fast it gets into the brain. Mm -hmm. So this NKTR181 is pretty cool because it is not absorbed slowly. Yeah. It gets into the brain slowly. Got it. So, it's, so that's pretty cool. And so that has uh, presumably a lesser risk of you know craving the opioid. So there are all sorts of things coming in the future. But the, the sad part is that if you look at all the different medical problems in, in you know, uh, in, in this country, uh, you know, common ones, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, all these things, they are much more highly funded than pain management. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, if you take diabetes, hypertension, uh, and, and cancer combined, there are less people that are affected by those diseases than there are pain. But right. pain, pain is the least funded than any of them, yet mm -hmm. we have this, you know, this, this, all, you know, all these regulations around pain. Right. Right. So our future then is bright with new opportunities, new drugs outside of the opioid, hopefully better, more responsible prescribing and um, and then potentially some actual attention to these problems. Uh, one funding pain management, pain management training, pain management certification, and then allowing us professionals to do our freaking job, you know? Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> Good. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time being on the podcast, talking about this. You're definitely coming back. We're talking about all sorts of other fun funky stuff in the future. So thanks, Jeff. All right. It sounds great. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. So how's that for a ton of information in a short amount of time, huh? There is one word I hope everyone walks away with after listening to Dr. Feud and I talk about this. And that's messy. Everyone was to blame in some manner for the opioid crisis. Most of the players that were supposed to serve as like a check and balance had at times many things standing in the way of doing what's right. There were shady characters, of course, uh, bad actors turning a blind eye and actively exploiting all the loopholes or even facilitating the destruction of the system. And that goes for pharma, doctors, drug wholesalers, pharmacies, pharmacists, and one group we didn't talk about a lot, but patients. Uh, it was a muddy, ugly mess, and it's a mess that will happen again. Maybe not with opioids, but it will happen. And I see personally vaping and nicotine re-addiction, I guess, if you will, as the next thing on the rise. So listen to that episode that we uh, did on vaping, and 
you'll hear parallels to this episode and it's pretty plainly put it is a problem and it is going to be the next epidemic dr jeff fuden has lots of great information out there and i'm sure he'd be happy to touch base with anyone who reaches out so visit paindoctor.com p-a-i-n-d-r.com and on facebook it's facebook.com slash pain dr jeffrey fuden P-A-I-N-D-R-J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-F-U-D-I-N. And until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and be well.